And I think that there's a difference between being nice or polite and empathetic. Okay. And I think that those two often get conflated. Um, I know that I've been told at times that I am too empathetic. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've had to really learn how to balance in my own career. Because at the end of the day, I think that you need to have an understanding not only because I don't think empathy exclusively is going to be applied to teams that you're managing. It's also indicative of the way that you're going to deal with clients. Sure, sure. Because if outcome is the only thing that you are focused on, then the how will always justify the what. Welcome to Media Sales Confidential, where we get the inside information from some of the world's most respected and innovative leaders. I'm Matt Bartles, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Joy Robbins, Chief Revenue Officer at The Washington Post. Let's go. Hi, Joy. Thanks so much for joining. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, have you on the show. Currently, you're at The Washington Post, but before that, you held leadership positions at Quartz, NBC, and BBC. That's right. So how did that happen? How, <laughs> how did this whole thing start? Yeah, sure. So I think you'll probably recognize a trend of news in a lot of that. But I think going back before even assuming leadership roles in sales organizations, I never thought I'd end up in this industry. If I'm totally honest, I went to school really thinking since I was pretty young that I wanted to be a social worker. I don't know what 10 year old thinks they want to be a social worker, <laughs> but that was something that really I was passionate about. I, I saw a real opportunity and took a lot of joy in, in making things better, making mm -hmm. people better. And so went to college for it. And in my junior senior year, I did a work study program and it was the hardest few months of my life. So really quickly recognized I actually hadn't taken many classes that were outside of sociology, psychology, all of the things that went on with that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately I felt myself getting far too emotionally invested and involved. And it was just, I was actually told by the person at my work study program not to pursue the field. Oh, wow. So I graduated really without knowing what I wanted to do. And so I took a gap year. And in the meantime, a lot of my friends from college got jobs at media agencies, which if I'm honest, having not taken a media class at all, I was not all that familiar with, but I had never imagined myself doing anything corporate. And when they described what they did, it sounded pretty uncorporate. Okay. TV media buyers back in the early 2000s was, was not a at least terribly sounding corporate job. So after I kind of took my gap year, I came back and went on to the agency side where I did everything from media buying and radio to television. Back then, actual internet banners were being given away as added value along with radio buys, if you could imagine. Sure. So after a couple of years on the agency side, I recognized that a lot of what my sales peers were doing was a lot of what I was doing with clients, ultimately translating things that would help their business and, and make them excited. So I took the jump to the other side onto a sales team and I really quickly kind of fell in love with that opportunity. I saw the ability to add value. I saw media in general as something that was really interesting. You're solving problems for companies who are ultimately looking to reach people. Mm -hmm. And so the way I got into management was kind of equally as interesting of a, a, a story in that I went from the Weather Channel at the time with my boss at the time over to the BBC, which didn't have a sales force. 
he told me I'd be able to sell digital advertising for the first time and we'd try to combine it with TV and, you know, do all of the things that were part of the future. And I took the leap uh, and we got over there. And for whatever reason, after about a year, year and a half, I had the opportunity to pitch for a VP job at the BBC running the digital ad sales team, which was incredibly nascent. And at that point, you know, that's where we're managing started. And so the way that my career has evolved from there is that I've not only fallen in love with sales leadership and just leading teams, but the news business altogether, mm -hmm. while incredibly difficult, feels incredibly motivating to me. The ability to not only drive revenue and partnerships with, um, you know, brands I really respect, uh, but also fund journalism. Mm -hmm which is something I think, you know, we can all agree over the last 10 years yeah. has been under such threat is really exciting. And, and kind of that really nice mix of purpose yeah. for me. Sure. I mean, that's, there's a lot going on there. So you start out in the agency, you go to be a seller, right? And then you become a VP of sales, just like that. And it, along the way, I constantly asked myself, like, is there a class I should be taking for <laughs> right. any of this? Right. What is, what is it that I don't know? I don't know. So I think that that, has been a theme of, do I actually know what I'm doing sure. uh, often in, in my career? So when you took that first VP job, now you have people that are reporting to you, I presume. What was the transition like and what was the biggest challenge for you going from that individual contributor role to now being in leadership? I think because at the time I went from being an individual contributor to essentially managing people who had been my peers, mm -hmm. I think recognizing and feeling comfortable with being put into the position where you know, I was essentially trusted with the future of that org and their strategy was for the first learning experience, really overcoming imposter syndrome to say, I know what I'm doing. I'm in this job for a reason. And, but at the same time, really shaping leadership in a way where I became a leader or a manager that I'd want to be managed by, really asking myself questions. Am I making decisions that ultimately, and I'm I communicating them in a way that helps, that is transparent, that has humility? All of the things that, you know, I would want to really expect from somebody who is, who is leading me. So what are those core things that you look for in a leader? Honestly, I think uh, caring about people and having humility are two of the core things. Sure. I think the other two are somebody that's incredibly passionate, somebody that is determined, somebody that has a bias for action, mm -hmm. I think are, are two sides that are really important. And I think the latter part of those two are probably expected. Sales leaders are thought of as hard charging, determined, in some cases characterized or caricatured as taskmasters and coaches. And I think that that is one part of it, but I think, and I'm, I'm pleased by the way that the world has changed in sales cultures, in media company cultures, that also recognizes without the humility and without the true attention to the team and the culture, mm -hmm. Those go hand in hand. Ultimately, you know, culture drives success in so yep. many ways, and whether it be in the short term or the long term. Yep. So I, that's what I really prioritize when I'm looking for leaders. Yeah, that's very interesting. So there's some theories out there that say that being caring and being nice don't necessarily translate into being, you know, accountable and being a good leader. Other folks are on the exact opposite that say you have to show empathy, you have to have caring, you have to have the humility to be a good leader. How do you know 
like is there's different leadership styles and and i mean it's not one for everybody but how do you make sure that the people that you're surrounding her with and the folks you're working with are all compatible yeah well i mean i think that there's a difference between being nice or polite and empathetic okay and i think that those two often get conflated um i know that i've been told at times that i am too empathetic. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've had to really learn how to balance in my own career. Because at the end of the day, I think that you need to have an understanding not only because I don't think empathy exclusively is going to be applied to teams that you're managing. It's also indicative of the way that you're going to deal with clients. Sure, sure. Because if outcome is the only thing that you are focused on, then the how will always justify the what. So when you think about that, ask a couple of things I wanted to follow up on that, yeah. the empathy part and the caring part, but then also yeah. accountability, you're st- still driving accountability, but you're also being empathetic to the folks that you're working with or you're hiring or whatever. How did you come to those core values? What was it in your life that said, you know what, I think this is one of the most important things that I need to make sure that it centers myself as a sure. leader. Early on in my career, even as a manager, I saw leadership above myself mm-hmm. that was reflective of both the characterization of non-empathetic only focused on results mm-hmm. and also people who took real care and interest in the people that they were managing trying to really understand them trying to really understand their clients and i saw the difference in the cultures that then filtered down into all of the teams mm-hmm. that were managed by those individuals and for me I saw the most resilience, the most passion, the best results, frankly, coming from teams that were managed by people who also were interested in them, that that had that empathy. And for me, going back to what drove me to want to get into things like social work or the recognition that I wanted to be in this industry to, you know, essentially push progress, Mm -hmm. that feels more natural to me that to me is a core value this idea of of empathy and care that i've consistently seen led to attracting better talent yeah making sure people stay Mm -hmm. making people invested yeah and i think that perhaps four or five years ago that wasn't as important in leadership roles i think you could have argued that they're interchangeable. But I do believe that especially where the world has gone in the last three years, you hear about everyone talking about enlightened leadership now and it being so much more focused on culture and that culture drives results. To be honest, I have seen that from the very beginning of my career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've got an incredible purpose here around people. And I would imagine any good sales leader, any leader that that doesn't have that is going to be challenged without that purpose because the people are what actually matters. Everybody says that, right? It's not a cliche. It's legitimately a real thing. So let me let me take a time here. Let me let me read this to you. And I want to I want you to react to this forward thinkers, risk takers, rainmakers, our at age 40 under 40 class is an electric group of movers in the world of media, marketing, tech and advertising. Congratulations on that award. What do you get for that? How does it <laughs> a plaque. You get yeah. a plaque. Yeah, no. And you get to tell your mom. Okay. That was really that was actually maybe the most exciting thing about it. Love it. So how did that how did that come about? And that was with your time uh, I, I presume at Quartz? At Quartz, yeah. So that was really re- in recognition of the growth that Quartz 
we, we took courts from zero dollars to tens of millions of dollars to being a profitable media startup in the course of three years. And that really came from hiring the right people, putting them in the right positions, mm-hmm. iterating. Yep. And that actually, courts was really my first experience with not only managing sales and ad operations and um, media teams, but also creative teams, marketing, and who I found where I feel as though there was a lot of growth in my own ability to lead because motivations of the sales executives often are somewhat straightforward. Mm -hmm. They have individual goals. It is all in service of one larger number managing creatives, the motivations are very different. And so that recognition of 40 under 40, I think was emblematic of getting, not just having to look at revenue success as the only measure of what mattered, but actually creating an incredible culture, an incredibly innovative team who really worked together uh, as a unit to ultimately put up some phenomenal results at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, you keep, you keep bringing it up, Joy. And I want to ask, what does that mean? Talk to me about culture. How do you define culture? What, and like, how are you actively trying to create a culture? When I arrived at the post, one of the things I, I saw was it wasn't necessarily a, a defined culture. Each group really within the Washington post client solutions team had developed their own culture. Mm-hmm. It was, given the the long-standing history of the Washington Post and that fact sure. that some people have been there for 26 years and some people have been there for 26 days, there wasn't necessarily a shared, a common vernacular of what unifies the team. Mm-hmm. And so building the idea of we are one Washington Post and what connects us is our mission mm-hmm. to support the journalism of the Washington Post by bringing you know, user first ideas to our clients to enhance, just developing that mission and defining some of the values that matter, being curious, being challenger mindset. To me, it's, it's what really people feel as though they're joining and are part of and can expect from their colleagues uh, and their managers get within the organization. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I truly believe that one of the greatest challenges of this generation right now going forward is going to be culture building and culture maintaining. Really with yes. all the challenges and the new people and all the changes that are happening with who's being hired and who's moving around. And it's like, how do you actually get to connect with somebody and yeah. know that you're right to work with them? And then how do you do that at scale when you've got a large organization that all needs to be singing from the same hymn? I couldn't agree more. It's one of the things I think that has been the hardest part of leading any organization over the last two years, mm-hmm. because group and teams have existed largely and linearly. The collaboration doesn't happen in the same way it would right. when people were in the office. You very often are not actually sitting down with someone when you're interviewing them. It is in a virtual setting. It's right. difficult to catch on on some of the cues that you may be able to uh, see in person. And once you stop talking to somebody, every conversation is transactional, if you really think about it. And so it took a little while for us to identify at the post within the client solutions group that that level of breakdown in relationships between people and that feeling of every conversation being a transactional one. Right 
was the thing that was really creating, giving us a hard time. And so as we started to get people together virtually for what we call like our all hands, uh, we do these biannually, we do manager meetings. Uh, we started to devote a lot more time to the serendipity of just getting people in breakout rooms to sure. say, you know, answer this question, yeah. tell each other something you might know and not, not know about each other. Because going forward, you're absolutely right. We've got teams that are now, they've always been located all over the country, but that's largely been sales functions. Sure. But now you've got people in lots of places and how to make people feel as though they're still part of a culture and make new individuals feel as though they are joining a culture mm -hmm. is something that we all as leaders have to work a lot harder on sure. right now. And how has that changed? So three years ago versus now, like what are you doing differently? And this obviously is top of mind for you yeah. to make sure that you're keeping that culture building effort into the organization. We introduced something for the first time last year, we really introduced the concept of goals beyond revenue okay. throughout our teams. Because one of the things that was clear over that first year of the pandemic is if I'm not out in the field, or if I'm not a salesperson, how is my, as an individual contributor, effort actually connected to anything that we're doing? How do I get visibility into what I'm doing and why it matters? Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, the, the establishment of key areas of focus and objectives of the management team, and ultimately what defines success mm -hmm. from a client solutions perspective became a lot more important to remind people of. I mean, the, just for what it's worth, like, you know, this idea, this concept of attract, build, retain customers, mm -hmm. build products, tools, and solutions, yep. uh, establish efficiencies and technology that ultimately drive that. And, and I mean, I think maybe this is something we could talk about, but uh, one of the last one last year was elevate our brand in the marketplace. This year we've added, and, and we haven't actually announced this yet, but commit to our people is a big part of that. And so you know, launching learning and development more broadly across the group so that it feels as though everybody has access to it, both yep. for skills that define their jobs as well as things that are outside of it. I mean, the way that we introduced goals beyond revenue to the entire sales organization was the fact that in any given year, including the one we just saw hit by a pandemic, right. revenue could be luck. Yep. Don't it could know. be luck based. And we need to make sure that we are doing all of the things as a team mm -hmm. and setting objectives that ultimately will facilitate success will will help us you know do the right things to scale business to not only i mean maybe this is like part of that it it was focused not on the idea of just generating top line revenue right. but also all of the things that go into that and yep. ultimately go into creating a scalable business yep yep i like that so how do you continuing to build change within an organization and evolve, how do you get folks to believe in you as a leader? Hmm. That has been, I think, one of the biggest lessons that I've had while at the Washington Post and the difference between a lot of the places that I've been, which were a bit more startup in nature, mm -hmm. where you built teams from the ground up and walking into a team that comprised of almost 300 people. Sure. In the very first few months of my tenure at the Washington Post, I couldn't go a few hours without someone saying, everybody wants to know what your strategy is. Everyone wants to know what you want them to do. Yeah. And to me, 
going from managing less than 100 people to 300 people, that was overwhelming because we talked very transparently and very openly in the startup culture because Mm -hmm. everybody was in everybody's business. We were all building this thing together, going into an organization that is far larger with higher stakes and getting people to believe and see that there is a North Star. Yeah. But first, actually identifying what that North Star has to be and giving yourself time to do that was one of the things that I think I was was the most difficult but most fulfilling to learn in the first few months. And I'm lucky that I actually had the chance to be at the Washington Post in person for a year before the pandemic hit. I gotcha. Because it gave me a chance to actually see and learn from people. I mean, before I really nailed down what I believed was going to be most important for the Washington Post to not only be successful now, but into the future, I had to take time to learn what the past had looked like. And I think that was one of the things, and that is one of the things that differentiates a lot of leadership styles of there are people who will come in and say, this is how it's done. This is how I've always done it. And this is how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always necessarily take into account what that organization is best set up to do the talent that currently resides in that organization and ultimately where there may be places that you need to fill gaps. Yeah. So it was really important for me to try to get that in place. And what it taught me over time was being able to be inspirational or to lead people toward a North Star, you need to tell them where we were first. And and there was a lot of varying understandings of where we'd been. Mm-hmm. So I think what the sort of moment that I really recall feeling as though that took was probably, you know, six to seven months after I'd started mm-hmm. where I level set for everyone of here's where we have been in the past. This is what our business looks like. This is what is driving success. This is what could drive success. And what it all comes down to and what I saw really be the biggest opportunity for the Washington Post is that we are a brand that has loyalty at scale. There are people who love the Washington Post and you know, being able to really leverage that in service of brands is an incredible thing. We are sure innovative and fast. And so how do we then take what we are known for, what we have developed from that standpoint and apply that to the marketplace to teach and ultimately, you know, help the rest of the industry thrive? And how do we create an incredible experience for our clients? Those three things started to get everybody onto the same page, but allowing the team to hear one message instead of the Washington Post and your experience within it depends on when you joined was something that was really important to me. Gotcha. Okay. So you made it clear to everybody, this is where we were, this is where we are, and this is where we're going. That's right. Exactly and they right. love, I love that. I love that. So you took on a new role going from a startup to a very large organization. You recently took on additional responsibilities at the Washington Post. When you're thinking about transitioning, when you were transitioning from that VP job to the CRO job at, at the Washington Post and now your new roles, what was it that, how did you prepare for that first day? And what, what did you do then? And looking back, what advice would you give somebody else now that's preparing for that first day or that first month or that first quarter? That's such a good question because I happen to be somebody that, you know, I know many people probably listening to this, I put enormous amounts of pressure on myself. And 
I look back to, and this might sound really corny, but I look back to something I wrote in like my yearbook uh, when, you know, you had like the senior quotes and mine was, if you believe you can never let anyone tell you, you can. And there is something about starting a new role, a new, a new company that I prepare myself in a, what are all of the things that might go wrong? What do I need to be able to overcome Mm -hmm. to potentially embrace this new role? That is the way my brain works. What I would do differently. (laughs) uh, And what I've tried to do is I've taken on this new position is what do I need to learn and who do I need to talk to? What, what knowledge gaps do I need to fill to give myself time to fully feel as though I can assume this role and make decisions in a way that makes myself and everyone on the team confident. It comes down to, and and perhaps where it comes back to is in roles before I put everything on, am I going to know enough? Will I be able to run this thing from the moment that I get into the seat? Is the first quarter going to be all a reflection of what I did? And it's not about what I do. It's about identifying and having the humility to say, what do I need to learn mm-hmm. to be able to be successful and to help the teams be successful? What does the team need from me yeah. to help them be successful? And that's really, I think, over time, what I've what I've learned. Because I think everybody comes in with thinking, or at least I did, that if you're the boss, you have to know everything. Yeah. And that is not true. And actually, a big part of how I've hired is identifying the things that I'm good at and the things I'm not good at and making sure that my leadership team then is has the skill sets or the knowledge bases that ultimately can create a team that yep. is whole. Yep. So how'd you go about identifying what your strengths were and weaknesses? Was that just your, your own thoughts or? I think there are things that I've, I know that I've been able to do well over time. And there are places that I've struggled that I know that I am less skilled in and and need to rely on other people. What I know I am good at is motivating people and caring about people and helping them see where we're going. Yeah. How do you go about staying motivated and balanced? with your life. Yeah. Like, how, yeah. First, let me, let me ask that. Let's keep that in mind. I want to ask first before that, I want to yeah. say, how do you prioritize your time as a leader? Is it on X percent of time thinking about strategy and leadership, X percent of the time just talking to people, having check, check-ins, X percent of the time taking down barriers? How do you, how do you think about your role and where you're spending <clears throat> your time? A lot of my time is spent talking with people across my own org or across others. I try to dedicate 10% of my week talking to people outside of the company, because I think if you get so wrapped up in the opportunities and challenges that exist in your own organization, you start to lose sight of the world out there and the best practices or other things that people have learned along the way. Yeah. I try to dedicate time. I am a very, very early morning person. I am like a 4.30 a.m.er. I need that quiet time to those are the, that's when I can think. That's when I can try and do focused work. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The 430. Wait, I've heard I've heard about this. I've heard I I've, I know about this, not from personal experience <laughs> being up at that time. But I've heard yeah. about people that do that here. It's very uh, empowering. It's, it's about self accountability, self reflection, a lot of things, setting goals. You know, you're, yeah. it's quiet. You're by yourself able to really reset your body for the day. Is Is that what you're doing? It is an opportunity to reset from whatever happened the day before. Uh huh is sort of to be able to set priorities and what you are going to try to get accomplished by the end of the day and to do some of the follow-up work 
to do things like answer emails that may be outstanding or to really connect with often just people on my own team who might have reached out that I know is sure. you know outstanding. Um, but more than anything, it is for me the time where I feel the most optimistic. Oh, I try and and this is my own way of, I guess, I don't think it's self-preservation, but it's, it is essential for me when it comes to having so many different businesses and teams to manage. I approach nearly every day with like a childlike optimism of like anything could happen today. And a lot of it might be good. Love it. <laughs> um, and so I, I almost have to reprogram myself every single morning. And so some of that, you know, 4.30, 5am time and mind space is just set spent resetting, letting go of things that may have happened the day before. I also happen to be a pretty avid, I work out every day. It's something I think I've developed more of an affinity for over the pandemic. And in some ways, being able to like physically and mentally overcome something in the morning sets the right tone for me for the rest of the day being like, okay, what do you got? And so that's, that's the time that you know, a lot of, I've heard someone once said to me, you know, as a leader, you're paid to think you're not supposed to be the doer as much as you are the thinker. And some of that, you know, I, I, I see that they have not seen my calendar then, (laughs) but I agree. There does have to be some thought and strategy and um, intentionality that's put into the interactions that you're having with people every day. And that's my, that's my space. Love it. Love it. I tell you what, that's funny. I, I had two brothers growing up. So three boys, And my dad used to say all the time to us, we got a lot of thinkers around here, not a lot of doers. So we need some more (laughs) doers. I'll do the thinking for you. That's funny. So, okay. So how did you get that discipline though, to be able to get up and to use that time and be that focused and Mm -hmm. and do it over and over and over again and take on this? What led you to have that amount of discipline? I think I've always had a certain amount of discipline. I grew up as a competitive gymnast. So I think that was dedication to sport was something nice, that I, nice. I saw really early on and I, it carried on not so much into school, but into <laughs> things when that determination. Yeah. What was your exercises? What'd you do? Oh, oh my, 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 yeah. my event. The um, it was all of them. All it was them? all of them. I went to college doing competitive gymnastics. It ultimately set the tone for me of if, if there's something that you want to get done, it's, you're going to work hard to do it. Yeah. And so this idea of capturing the morning or really making that time. I, I've, I learned pretty early on that I am most productive in the morning. Mm-hmm. And if I want to be able, some people can work until, you know, midnight. And there was a time where in startup world, you would work, wake up at four in the morning right. and you would work till midnight. Right. But from a self-preservation perspective and what I've learned over the course of my career, the discipline of being able to get up and have a routine, uh, even when, there is no routine. Even when I was on the road constantly pre-pandemic, it's really staying true to that 5 a.m. in the morning uh, mindset. I love it. The old 5 a.m. mindset. What time do you go to bed? Oh, at 9.30. God, that yeah. is... No, I'm like, if I'm not asleep by 11, I start to get a little nervous because it's like, uh, <laughs> because I've gotten to the point where my body naturally wakes up at 4.30. Sure. Um, and the thing that sometimes I feel really bad about is, especially when I'm like getting out, when I'm really productive, when I'm getting out of emails, I usually remember to send to like schedule, to do the scheduler. So it doesn't actually go to people's inboxes until like yeah. eight thirty nine 9am. Yeah. Then when I have the panic moment of like, 
shit, I just said that <laughs> at like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. I always panic if it's going to wake up people. Uh, you know what? That's better than the opposite. I know guys that's that, true. Will, that will try to send the type the emails the night before and send it at four o'clock in the morning to act like they're up at four. Doing it. It's like when I was considered for being this role, one of the things like I knew was working against me was my age and oh. like my experience level. You know, it's one of the things that I think for like a long time, being a VP before you're 30, people don't take you seriously often. And so I remember it was myself and I knew I was up against sort of somebody that was far more senior than me, run big organizations. And the CEO told me once he did hire me, like one of the reasons that we decided to go with you was I've never seen anybody write follow-up emails so early in the morning. And I asked, and like, apparently he like forwarded around to all the other people I interviewed with is like, do you ever wake up at 5.15 in the morning and send me emails? <laughs> I so. love it. So that even makes it even more valuable. The old five <laughs> exactly. mindset. That's how you get the job. <laughs> right. Totally. Very cool. Out of curiosity, was imposter syndrome, you mentioned imposter syndrome. That's a hot topic right now. And I've had multiple conversations about it. Some people talk about all how bad it is. And if you think you have yeah. imposter syndrome, you actually can't have it because the only way to have it is to not know you have it, which I don't know how that works. I don't know um, how that works. I don't get that. Yeah. I know. Like, because I felt like I had imposter syndrome forever. Like, it's never good enough. You're always feeling like no matter what you're doing, you're trying to do better. Yeah. And it is pretty good. But I've had conversations like, for example, with, with Sarah at, at Twitter, and she was saying it was the best thing for her because it kept her motivated to continue to try to strive, strive, strive and never get yeah. complacent. It's true. I mean, I, I completely agree. There's there's a balance. I think there is paralyzing imposter syndrome that I feel like was something that I struggled with in the beginning of my career, especially as I became a leader or younger, because you feel like everybody's looking at you and expecting more of you or thinking you don't deserve it. And you're fighting not only yourself, but you feel like you're fighting the world. And that makes it hard to make decisions. Mm -hmm. I am, I think the just amount of right dosage, or I finally found the right balance of paranoia Uh in everything I do in that everything is awesome. And I do approach every day with childlike optimism, but I also know that like nothing is permanent. So the success that we may have had today, you know, can't just be taken for granted. And it is the thing that, really pushes my me and frankly i think like creates a health it it probably is the thing that balances out the empathy you know yes there is a huge focus and and value i put on being empathetic and caring about people but it doesn't take away from the urgency or the importance of performance and accountability yeah it's just how you do it right and like what that looks like and how you get people to hold themselves accountable versus you always feeling like you're the one that has to hold them accountable. That's the best. When that transition happens, do you encourage that? Do you actively try to tell people to do that? I mean, the the thing that I've always, whenever I start to work with new teams, I know that one of the things I'm great at, as I said, is like going from, okay, we're here. I want to go there. Mm -hmm. But every single micro step in between is not necessarily the thing that I am great at mapping out. And so when I work with teams and find my, you know, yin, yang, whatever, it happens to be people that are, okay, I see where you're going. And I am this idea of like a bias towards action. There's nothing better for me than when somebody says, I heard what you said, here's the proposal that I put together for how we get there. And what do you think? Can I keep moving? Like that is the best thing. It's just the more operational nature. Um, I am not a strong operational person, Mm -hmm. but I I know it when I see it. And it's it's really easy for me to make decisions based on that 
But also when it comes to people, there, there is, that is a cultural aspect too. having a culture of accountability. It is when you expect people to hold themselves. I'm not going to micromanage you on a daily basis. I'm a terrible micromanager, but at the end of the day, it's like, I will give you an incredible amount of autonomy when you hold yourself accountable and people are happier. People right. are so much happier and the right people are on the team. Like you get the right people who appreciate that accountability and that autonomy. Love it. All right. So we end the podcast always with hearing about what your mantra is. Joy Robbins, what is your leadership mantra? It comes from a probably pretty old management book that I was encouraged to read by my first boss when I became a VP, which was uh, Good to Great. Okay. And in Good to Great by Jim Collins, you know, they talk about this concept of level five leadership and ultimately really trying to pursue being a level five leader, which is humility, determination, and passion. And one of the things that struck me about that book and reading about level five leadership is that great leaders build teams and build companies that not only thrive while they're there, but thrive long after they leave. And the idea of creating something that has longevity and sustainability and is something that I think a lot about. Am I doing the things that would ultimately be reflective of a level five leader? I think once you say you are a level five leader, you may actually not be one because of the <laughs> humility piece, but, but striving for that has been a really important part of what I've, I've really focused on. The other part of that is the concept of hire people who are smarter than you, sure. hire people who are better than you. That has been something that has helped me surround myself with people who I trust and who I have confidence will make the organization better. Love it. Absolutely love it. Joy, thanks so much for joining us today on Media Sales Confidential with Matt Bartles. As always, it was really good to have you. And for those of you out there, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and never miss an episode. Be sure to share this with your friends. Thank you for listening. And that's the Inside Scoop. Mm -hmm.